In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I sit down with an audio expert who has worked in many aspects of the music industry. After starting out as a performer in bands during some of the halcyon days of the Brisbane rock scene, Scott Mullane has evolved to become one of the country's leading sound engineers. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Scott Mullane, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. You've got a background as a musician. What got you into music in the first place? I don't know. I was always just drawn to it, you know, uh, taught myself to play guitar, um, had some drum lessons and then just didn't like the fundamental rudimentary stuff and so taught myself to play to music tracks uh so i'd play along to my favorite bands and whatnot and uh, that's kind of how i taught myself to be a musician and then uh spent my i guess my musical career if you want to call it that uh playing drums in bands what attracted you to the music scene in the first place what was the the big pull oh Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I've never really thought about it. It was just something I was drawn to. So um, I just wanted to. I just wanted to play music, and music made me happy. Playing records at home, you know, always in the car playing music, and uh, I didn't really listen to the radio very much. It was always the music that I was drawn to, and then um, I guess the creative side of me just. I wanted to write songs as well, so I needed an outlet to, you know, uh, play and perform and play original music rather than other people's music. When you're listening to music, what sort of music are you listening to? What sort of genre? Oh, look, I'm I'm a rock guy at heart, uh, and I always come back to that as my core, but I'll listen to anything. I'm just about... uh, good songs and i think the more uh as i went into recording as a producer then um it was just all about the music all about the songs i didn't really care what genre i was doing you're talking about recording what sort of process goes on when you're in the recording studio how much pressure is there uh there can be a lot but as a producer you're trying to create an environment that uh is conducive to creativity so it's it's i was always telling musicians to turn your brain off and just feel it feel your way through it um always trying to get that something that you can't create you have to well you do create it but you, you have to feel your way into it it's, it's that spontaneity what sort of age were you when you were starting in this interest in music uh, I, I guess early teens and and teaching myself to play and then but it was late teens that that uh, uh, bands I was drawn to bands I'd, I'd I'd go out in Fortitude Valley like four or five nights a week seeing original bands wow. play and you know just I uh, just loved it yeah just immersed myself in it. They must have been the halcyon days of Australian <laughs> rock. Yeah, it was the eighties. You know, it was uh, yeah. You'd see these really interesting bands you know grass very grassroots you know uh i guess triple j was a a big part of that you know it was the early early years of that and um 
four triple Z in Brisbane. These these weren't mainstream acts, you know. These were it was all underground, and it was a little it was a kind of a touring scene. And uh, but some of those bands I saw uh, are still around today. They you know they've uh, they've seen I guess the heights of some moderate success, and then uh, and it was Australian music as well. I've really I've always been attracted to. I love music from all around the world, but. I've always supported Australian music. It's interesting you mentioned Four Triple Z. I never forget the uh, uh, what do they call it? The promo that they had at one stage with uh, Janis Joplin, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, and they're all dead, and they didn't listen to Four Triple Z. <laughs> yeah, I mean they've always been very radical. I remember, uh, I guess, early on in uh, listening to Four Triple Z. I started listening to them when they were still at UQ and then there was uh in my mind I can't I can't really remember but it was at least a week long lockdown where they had to actually get out of UQ and uh they actually just fortified themselves in there and kept broadcasting <laughs> anti-establishment and uh, it was a crazy time you know and it was really exciting to be listening to people so impassioned about music that you know they batten down the hatches in in, in a government facility and uh, you know just waving the finger at police i guess it was pretty interesting i don't think triple z's the same station it was then but they were very 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 much i guess they've always been an activist station but uh, yeah yeah they're very interesting back in the 80s i've got to say that was when it was really getting its fundamentalist roots yeah and was the music that sort of out there that you were listening to? Uh, <clears throat> possibly, possibly. I don't think it was really crazy, you know, left of centre. It was um, just good, fun rock music. You know, if it made me, if it made me feel good, it stirred something in you. Then I was interested in it. You know, so I'm trying to think of the songs now, but it was a long time ago, of course. But the bands I was listening to back then was like. Uh, the Screaming Tribesmen, the Lions, Lime Spiders, the uh, the Hitmen, um, Radio Birdman, the Saints, um, you know, and all of these have had different different levels of success. I mean, the Saints were one of the pioneers of the punk rock movement, and uh, you know, and went on to have actually commercial radio success uh, as a band, and then also as solo artists as well. And the Lime Spiders also had a moderate amount of success yeah well all these bands did you know uh, i even remember uh, screaming tribesmen uh had a hit that was on mainstream triple m you know so they they kind of crossed over it was a it was a very much a time of crossover there's a great book actually called the sell-in that um it's about the music industry crossing over from the 80s into the 90s and how what we see as uh independent music now or alternative music the mainstream record labels it talks about how they saw that as a growing cash cow and they wanted to control it but obviously it was an alternative thing it was independent so they had to work out how to make that part of the commercial machine and it's a great book and it talks about some you know uh rat cat magic dirt umi like a whole bunch of bands that came up through that era and um some great anecdotes and stories in that one it's well worth the read did they get enough control 
oh, the record labels took over alternative music. What we saw as alternative became not in the 90s. It was mainstream. And the book talks about it purely in those terms. It's a great book. As an artist how did, and a musician yourself, how did you feel about that? Uh, you, you felt like something was being taken away from you. You know, the, the, your, your, little, your little club had been infiltrated by the machine, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was an interesting time. And uh, I came to understand it because at the end of the day, if you're trying to get reach with your music, you, you have to embrace what the greater society understands to be the process. If you can't embrace that, you're going to be in your little neighbourhood forever. So there has to be... You have to understand how, how to... Uh, and I guess, the, you know what, the 2000s with the, uh, the internet and um, some great platforms coming out on that made independent music a lot more accessible to the world. But prior to that, 80s and 90s, to get your music out on a large scale you had to embrace what you kind of fought against, if that made sense. <laughs> had, to, had to learn to work and play nicely with the enemy. <laughs> when you were creating music, how did you look at the success? Did you aim for that or did you? It was it more the music that was leading you? Oh, look, I, I don't know. It was just this passion for music. And, I mean, you, you wanted to, to do what you did and get it out to the world and... I guess as you get older, you understand uh, the limitations of your knowledge and experience and how that's, you know, like I played in a few bands and one of the bands I was in had, you know, we had a moderate success with a couple of high rotation singles on Triple J, had songs on some television shows like Underbelly in Australia and uh, uh, in the US burn notice some gossip girl you know and you get a little bit of money for that but you always there's a carrot that's in front of you that you're never quite gonna reach you know and all and any of that money that came in paled in comparison to the money that was outgoing trying to <laughs> tour record do all those things so you know eventually i got to a, a point uh, in 08 where it was it was kind of beyond me you know i was uh, getting older and you know hung up my boots if you like still played on a few albums post that people would ask me to play on it but um yeah generally speaking what's the feeling though when you first hear yourself and then continue to hear different music of yours on the radio you know back in the day it must have been huge it's exciting to hear it at the time and then uh i guess being a creative you're so critical of it when you hear it <laughs> later on you know when you've matured a little bit and you're going, oh, God, <laughs> what was I thinking then? The television side of things, you know, you talk about the underbellies, that sort of things. That must have been a real buzz and, and oh, a real yeah. feather in your cap. Yeah. Well, look, I, I always had, like, no matter what we did, um, you know, a few of the supports that we had, you played with bands that, you know, I might have gone, well, I, I kind of grew up listening to them. Here I am playing on the same stage as them. It's all about the minute, I won't call it success, but you're, you're dotting your uh, timeline with really important um, dates. And it's just about stopping to smell the roses and just enjoying that moment because 
they're gone in they're gone in the blink of an eye. So it's just enjoying that moment and thinking, hey, I actually did that. You know, that's part of what's brought me to this point. When you are playing, who are some of the big bands that you did play and support with? That uh... oh, gosh, I've got a terrible memory, and uh, it'll come to me when <laughs> in five minutes' time. But uh, um, the Jam from the UK. Uh, when they toured Australia, we, we got to support them. Um, we did a really fun uh, support run with Spiderbait. Uh, yeah, so a few people like that. So, you know, from Australian to some international people who came through. So when you're actually uh, mixing it with these guys, had you put them on a pedestal or how did you approach it and, and how did you get along with these guys? Uh, look, I, I, everyone that I meet that, you know, whether they're a hero or not, you, they're just human beings, you know, they've got their own their own set of life experiences and probably issues too, you know, so I guess it, it, I just approach them as, hey, g'day, how you doing? See, and, you know, see if you get a warm response from them or, or not, and then you, I guess, base, uh, base any further interaction on that. You hung up the musical shoes or boots or whatever, as you're saying, in, in 2008. Was it just because the family was more involved or y your creative urge was starting to peter out a little bit? No, definitely. Uh, I've still got the creative urge. Um, I think there just comes a time where you've got to, you know... I've got to earn a living at some point, you know. <laughs> it's very difficult to be doing, you know, rehearsal one night a week, pre-production songwriting one day a week, um, then maybe a photo shoot, a video shoot, play gigs on the weekend. Yeah, I guess there comes a point where, you know, it's, I mean, we ran it as a business, you know. We, we had all our tax in order for the bands and whatnot, but, uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, you can only make losses for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Tax department gets a little bit upset. Yeah, that that's one. right. They want to see a profit every now and again. So what happened then? Well, I, I guess all of my uh, career changes were never one thing stopped and another thing started. They were always overlapped greatly. So um, for a time, I kind of started in... Uh, because I wanted to create and write songs, the easiest way to do that was also to learn how to notepad those ideas. So it was how to record them, how to jot them down. So, you know, uh, a mate of mine and I would sit down with, he had a little four-track cassette recorder, <laughs> uh, and so we'd, we played around with that. Um, when we would have rehearsals, I had... Um, the old classic 80s boombox and had a little microphone input. I didn't have a microphone. I didn't know what I was doing back then. But if you remember the old Walkman headphones with the little metal band over your head with the little yellow foam, whatever's, the ear, ear pods, uh, my dad had this wire ashtray and I would stretch the earphones over this ashtray <laughs> and then plug the headphones into the microphone input of my boombox. And I thought, maybe that will pick up the sound using headphones and i tried it and it worked so i would 
put the ashtray in the middle of the room and the headphones became a stereo microphone and we would record our rehearsals. And so I, I guess the little scientist in me, you know, wanted to tinker and play with those things to learn how that all worked. And then um, I was an auto electrician at the time. So I used to, in my car, I'd wire up my car stereo, whatnot. And then one day a mate of mine had hired a PA system to play a gig at a pub. And he said, you know how to plug speakers together. Can you come and give us a hand? And I thought, well, I don't know how a mixing console works. I don't know any of that stuff. But there was a fuzzy logic in that, yes, I could plug it all together. So I went along to the gig and I plugged it all together and got the PA system working. And then I had to mix the band. And it was a train wreck. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing at all. Like I had someone from the audience come up and say, hey, mate, you seem like you're in trouble. Do you need a hand? And I was like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. And he, he jumped on and sorted it out. But um, I guess through that, it was like, huh, I got it working, but I didn't know what happened. You know, it was like, why was it such a train wreck? And so I kind of read books and talked to people and, worked out because I have a bit of electronics knowledge how it all goes together and what does what and so that started me on a journey of learning about uh, the craft of recording and the craft of mixing a live band and so then uh, I used to do a little bit of you know small pub gig live mixing dates and you know that was fun and everything there's no money in it and the more on the other side the more I got into recording the more excited I was about that. And uh, I ended up building a studio and f- for a, you know, I don't know, a couple of decades producing albums for, for bands and uh, just learning the craft and getting better at it. In fact, there was a band from Gympie that uh, was one of the early ones that I produced an album for and it was a band called The Amity Affliction, which was a hardcore band I'd never done any hardcore. That wasn't kind of my my thing. But because I just listen to music, the genre doesn't worry me because you learn how musically that genre works and you stay roughly within that framework, but you allow enough scope for creativity for them to be themselves. And that was what I always did. I tried to find out what made this collection of musicians uh, the, the personality and character of that collection. And I always wanted to stay true to that because that would be their individuality. There'd be, the world didn't need another you too. So if their music was similar to that, you try and find out who they are and what makes them slightly different. And you always stay true to that sound. And you might be creative, move left and right around that, but stay true to that one element that is them. That's the heart of that collective. And, you know, that served me well over my career of recording. I've since, uh, a couple of years ago, sold my studio, so I don't do a lot of recording now, but um, it's always a passion. I've still got a recording set up. The background as an auto sparky must have been a great help, though you didn't even realise it when you're studying, doing your trade. No, not at all. And I hated the job and I left it after my apprenticeship, but it definitely uh, helped me. With, the, with this so there's this fuzzy logic that took me on this journey and uh, had had my mate not asked me to put his PA together at a 
at a pub gig, I may not have got interested in that side of it so much. I'm not sure, but yeah, it was just all the creativity and then working out why something doesn't work. I mean, every piece of equipment that I owned in my studio, I pulled apart <laughs> to see how it worked because me understanding how it worked allowed me to use it more effectively in the studio as well. So, you know, it's definitely been a journey. And then so it was a musician, musician wanting to be, I guess, a songwriter. And then that overlapping into having to record my stuff uh, sent me on that journey. And then other people wanted me to mix their band live. And then other people wanted me to record their band. And so that cre you know created the next phase of the journey. And I love the studio, but with the advent of you know the home recording setup being so simple now, just budgets were just cut down so so badly. It was very difficult to make a really good living out of it. Um, budgets got one tenth of what they they used to be. You know, it's like. Uh, and then uh, there just seemed to be a knock at the door for people to say, hey, we like what you do when you mix a live band. Would you do that for us? And there just seemed to be more pull for me in that direction. And so I went, okay, you know, I'll give it a try. I was never the road dog who'd hit the road and be gone for weeks at a time. That didn't appeal to me. But all the people who were asking me to work for them, they fly in, fly out. They do two shows a week. Friday, Saturday, fly home Sunday, you're home for the week, then fly out the next week and do Friday, Saturday, fly home again. It was a very civilised way of touring. And so I went, okay, you know, they want me to do that. I think I can do that. That's not, it's not so hard. It's uh, very civilised, as I say, and um, it appealed to me. And it just, I don't know, it just, uh, that seemed to grow my career faster. I want to come back to that in a tick, but... You said something before about how you left your apprenticeship or auto-electrical work mm -hmm. as soon as you'd finished your apprenticeship. What did your parents say when <laughs> you're pursuing music? Uh, well, it wasn't kind of like that. Music was always parallel with me having a job. Like, like you'd have to pay the rent, buy your groceries and whatnot. So I was always working at what we'll call a ordinary job while I was pursuing music so I guess um, I was a tradesman as an auto electrician for two or three years but I just got out of it then I went to uni to study teaching and so I was studying teaching and playing music and that was very appealing because you know I could I could study less <laughs> and uh, play music uh, you know a lot um, and the uni lifestyle allowed that quite <laughs> <laughs> quite well um, and then I got out of that realized I didn't want to teach in the classroom and uh, had a job with World Vision for a while and then um, out of World Vision went into I thought what can I do that is closely related to music but is still a nine-to-five job and I got a job working in music retail so selling guitars, drums, musical instruments. And then I worked for a company called Music Works in Fortitude Valley, which was known as a great rock um, supplier of musical instruments, like clients of ours like Powderfinger and whatnot, you know, that we, 
so it was it was cool it was in the fortitude valley which was the hub of uh live music in brisbane and uh so yeah it was a very cool time and i could work and get paid to do that and then do music at night uh, so that was great and then went from there to the australian academy of music at spring hill so very similar vibe uh, and i did that for probably 10 years working working in that while pursuing music recording other musicians on the side so very busy but all music based you know so i immersed myself in it australian academy of music what happened there um well, I, uh, I worked up until 2000 there. And in 2000, I decided I'd go and work full-time in my studio. I felt there was enough work that I could leave a good-paying job there and, uh, and go, and work, uh, go and do what I loved and do it for myself. How did it feel when you're jumping off that cliff Ooh. of just using your own skill and talent and just relying on what you could achieve terrifying exciting uh yeah crazy as it, it definitely your senses become alive because you're in this unknown territory so uh had to learn to run a business that was that was a learning curve and a half i mean it's great to be a creative but you've actually got to run a business Oh my God, that's a different thing to being a creative, you know, like left brain, right brain going on there. And uh, yeah, it was, was an interesting time, but working for myself and I, I got some pretty decent projects and some good budgets. What was the big thing you learned out of all of that? Uh, uh, lots of lots of things I learned. I, I, I mean, I learned the craft, of course, but I also learned uh, how to do bass. <laughs> <laughs> far less exciting <laughs> but uh you know these are the things that you learn they 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 make you a little wiser each day and a little um a little more astute and uh you mature and uh yeah i i guess learning to be reliable uh learning to studios are notorious for running ridiculous hours like you know start at lunchtime and go through <laughs> till midnight kind of thing I early on, and this was very unusual when I started uh, uh, recording with a studio, but I wanted, I've always wanted to keep music and family life balance in a good health state, I guess. But the, that's not always possible. In fact, it's very difficult. But I started recording, so you know what? Record from uh, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. or something like that so I always put some pretty good boundaries on what I was doing in the studio there were there are times where you're on a creative role and you know that if you pull the pin at that point you're going to lose that so you know you'd swing into what overtime I guess but uh, that never was a financial burden on the bands, of course, when I say over time, but the, you, you'd go a little bit over. It wasn't hard and fast rules because it's a creative job, but I tried to put some boundaries on it and um, get a work-life balance going on and, uh, and be creative and enjoy it, and it worked really well. And my brother-in-law is a record producer, and he ended up hot, uh, renting the space next to my studio where he set up his studio. So we had our two studios side by side, in a, um, a commercial facility and he'd be recording a band I'd be recording the band 
and there was this cool vibe going on and this band had popped their head in to listen to what I was doing a band I was working on would pop their head in see what he was doing and then we'd go hey we need this group vocal going on we need there's only four of us we want it to sound a lot bigger than that you guys are recording here you know listen at one o'clock can you pop on in and we'll all get in the studio together and do some gang vocals or something like that so there's this really cool community vibe going on so at that time it was that was the early 2000s and that was uh that was fantastic what sort of equipment were you recording on at this stage? ADAT was a big thing, so analog tape. I had an analog tape machine still, and I'd record to that as well for different things. But uh, ADAT was this VHS tape machine to record eight digital tracks together, and you could have multiple multiple machines synced up and do. So I had four of these machines, and I could do thirty two tracks of digital with these four eight track machines all synced together and you know it was I, I, look it was expensive still it was you know each of these machines was about 10 grand each and um you know so to do a 32 track digital recording was crazy you know i had an analog desk still that would mix down through and then a company um avid digidesign pro tools had a um a computer-based format that uh, was gaining popularity and um, I watched it when it was just a two-track then a four-track then an eight-track version I started on it before it was even called Pro Tools actually Um, and uh, wow and look at it now oh yeah and then then that became my format and I slowly I used to record to these ADAP machines digitally transfer that into Pro Tools and edit in Pro Tools, then transfer that back to ADAT and then mix that down through the analog console. So it was it was a big process. And then um, when I felt confident that Pro Tools was up to the task, then I recorded to Pro Tools, kept it in Pro Tools and mixed down in Pro Tools. So yeah, it was a big transition. So I saw a few formats from analog Real to real, open real tape machine to ADAT to uh, Pro Tools. Yeah. Was there a lot to learn when you were going to the Pro, Tool, Pro Tools format? Oh, definitely. You know, here was this computer format that could do all these crazy things. And, um, you know, you could lock things to a timeline grid that was in sync with the music and all these new things that you could never do back on when we were recording on tape. And uh, that was pretty exciting and pretty crazy. And I guess for me, I always wanted to keep the human element in there. So I didn't really get into the cut, copy, paste thing. Um, it was a tool to be used, but it wasn't part of my process. So it was, I need to capture a band as live as I can. Capture, there's an excitement in that. There's a, yeah just an element of excitement that you're just trying to how do i get that in a recording it's very difficult so i was always looking for that leverage to uh to make that part of my process and not make it sound too formulaic what is the secret to doing that it's creating an environment where the musicians feel comfortable i mean a studio it's crazy because as creatives we go into a studio to record uh our masterpieces you know and a studio is the most clinical goldfish bowl 
So if you've got a guy, you've got a singer where you want to get this impassioned, uh, creative uh, take down from, from, a, from a singer, they're on the other side of the glass. You know, they've got the rest of their band sitting on a couch. They've got you at the desk there. We're all peering through their goldfish bowl. It's unnatural. It's clinical. And, you know, your brain starts to play into how that all plays out. And it's very difficult to, um, to, to get them relaxed and doing, doing the take they need to do. You've got you to gotta do distractions. Sometimes a singer-songwriter, you have to put a guitar in their hand and get them just to hold it so they feel like they do when they're on stage. Dim the lights. Um, all sorts of crazy things you would do. You know, you'd even have uh, somebody who you would turn the lights off so you couldn't even see them in that room and they might have to get naked to do it. They're just distractions, you know. You just got to... <laughs> um, I know Phil, Phil Spector uh, famously uh, took a shotgun in, into a room and threatened the singer so to, to get their mind thinking about something completely different. So, you know, <laughs> you can go crazy. Obviously, I never did that. So, What is the weirdest thing you did? See, I never saw any of it as weird. It was always a means to an end. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just get them to give their heart and soul to the performance. Um, I mentioned the Amity Affliction before. Uh, Aaron, who was singing at the time, he, I remember he would do, so a, a lot of the hardcore stuff, they do these screams and growls and whatever, and then they might sing a, a nice melody part. And I think a lot of those people, when they do a take in the studio, would do the nice melody part, work on that, and then they'd work on their more aggressive parts of the take but I guess when you're young you don't look at it as separate things you look at it as I have to perform all of these parts and just jump between them so Aaron would uh, literally record those parts as one take so he'd be jumping for this guttural gut shaking growl to this you know nice melodies and he would dig so deep into his diaphragm to do that that the first two times I didn't know what was going on, but he'd just do a take and run straight past me out of the control room, through the doors and outside. And I was like, what's going on? Maybe just need some air, just to whatever. But he's going outside to throw up because he was just digging so deep into his diaphragm, he would make himself sick. Wow. Yeah. That's performance. Yeah, that's given it all. And that's what you're trying to get out of people. You're trying to create a comfortable environment for them where they're giving their all. It's an interesting thing, though, with live music. You've got the audience to give you that energy. Can you find that energy? Can you find it in the studio? You can. It's difficult. It's hard work. So it's, you know, it's 50% about the technical process and 50% about creating that environment and, and uh getting your musician to a, a point where they're amped up and they're giving their energy into it. You know, that's that's the difference. C controlling their energy. Sometimes it's too much. You know, you go, hey, listen, your energy's really high. We need to back it off a little bit. You know, I, I remember once we were trying to get a take out of somebody and they were fatiguing a little bit. They were hungry. And we're like, no, you're not getting out of there until we get this take. We're so close and we've got the... We're in the we're in the vibe. We're we're around where we need to be. We just need to hit that mark, and I ended up 
taping a Snickers bar to the window so they could see it while they were playing. I said, that's yours once you finish. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's just, it's about what motivates them, you know, how can you get them? And within five minutes, they'd, I'd got the take then and they, you know, ran out and got their Snickers bar and, and were eating, so yeah. Let's get on to the live music. When you started to move into mixing, must have been a lot of fun. Must have been great to be part of that energy of live music. Yeah, well, totally different to the studio where your studio, you do a take, it's not right, you do another take. Whereas live, it's one take. That's it. You've got one chance at this. And I learned very quickly that as a live audio engineer, I can still be a creative. I become... I can become a part of the band's performance. And I think all the acts I've worked with have recognised that, and that's why they like to work with me, is that they, they, they say there's just something that feels different on stage when they're on stage. Uh, singers often tell me they love the way they feel the music coming back at them in the room, and that inspires them to go further. Uh, like... Um, I mean, I've worked with some great singers like Marina Pryor, for instance. She's the First Lady of Australian Theatre and she's a fabulous lady and a fabulous singer. And um, she's commented how she feels like when she's going for those moments that I'm supporting her, I've got, I've got her back. She feels supported by me and what I'm delivering to the audience. And so she feels like she can reach even further. Wow. Yeah. And I get that a lot from singers. They feel like, oh, that note, which I always feel a little bit tentative about going for, you know, I might cut it short or something like that. They feel like I'm supporting them through it so they keep it longer, push it further. And, uh, and I really take that on board as like, that's where I'm connecting with the artist and becoming part of their performance rather than just... Um, a, an avenue of delivery and then you've got the audience there that they give you feedback you you get you see their body language if they're into it if they're not into it you know they i'm always watching the audience as well because if they're responding well then i know i'm where i'm supposed to be if they're you know you see people a bit disinterested then you, you need to know you need to change it up a little bit to get their attention what's the big secret when you are mixing for live music Understand the act that you're working for. Um, listen to their records. Understand who they are musically and preserve that at all costs. That's, that's a really important thing. Uh, it's not your job to change them. It's your job to deliver what they do to their fans. So just as much a performance from you as it is from the artist. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, look, and some of the best mixes I've done is where, you, where you've created... Just like in the studio, you've created a level of comfort for the band on stage where they feel like they're supported, they've got all the resources they need to perform the best they can. They're hearing themselves, whether through fallback or the PA coming back at them, the way that fills them with confidence so then they deliver their best performance. They're not holding back. They're going 110% because they feel like there's a safety net there. And when they perform like that, I can just push the faders up and do nothing and it'll sound incredible. If I can create that environment, just like I do in the studio for them, they'll sound incredible. I'll be the one who gets a pat on the back from the audience as they leave saying, oh, that mix was awesome. 
and I've done nothing. That's my job. If I can get them to there, that is the perfect environment. So they realize the audience often that the part that you play in the whole interaction? I'm, I'm surprised at how often, uh, like, you know, at a, at a, if I'm out with uh, a rock band like the Screaming Jets, you know, if I've got punters just walk up to my sound desk and put a beer there and give me a thumbs up and I know I'm doing a good job because they're like, I'm going to buy this bloke a beer because this, I'm, you know, he's tripping at how, how, how much he's loving that show for his favourite band that he's gone to see and I'm a part of that and that's great and uh, and uh, with Marina Pryor I'd have people walk past the sound desk on their way out after the show who would actually be crying and say that was beautiful that was such a and that's Marina I mean she is stunning and fabulous and it's my job to package that and present it and preserve that but when the audience brings it down you can hear a pin drop and the audience is engaged that's the moment because you know at a pub show that's really hard but you're in a theater it bring it down so quiet and the audience is just captivated by it it's like it's ho- the performance is just hovering in the air in front of them and it does get emotional and yeah i literally have uh, i can't tell you how many shows i had people coming out and they say oh, i was crying it was beautiful how does that affect you um, oh, I just feel, well, I feel like I've done my job and I feel like I've, uh, the things I've set out to do, you know, I've preserved it all. Um, I've been true and honourable to the performer and the audience has, has been engaged and loved it. And so they've had a great night out and they are just more, I guess they go away then thinking that artist is the best artist I've ever seen. They'll go buy some a new album from that artist or some merch from that artist. So it just, you know, I guess more than just me doing sound for that artist, I'm very conscious of the machine because that artist is then earning a living because that punter has just been emotionally touched by the performance to the point where they're spending money at the merch desk, which is then feeding the artist. And they know that they need to employ me to keep delivering that. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a bigger picture than just the artist and myself. It's, all, it's, it's the whole machine. So, you know, I, and I do see that. And I guess that's why some bands hire me to do tour management as well as be in front of house because they know I understand the business behind what they're doing. You know, they're trying to make a living. They're out there selling their wares. You were saying earlier that uh, it became quite civilised. You'd fly out, fly in, fly out. Yeah. Is that what you continue to do? Yeah, oh, definitely. I <clears throat> The longest tour I've ever done is being away from home for about three weeks. And uh, I've done that in Australia, but um, mostly when I've done that, it's been because you've gone to the US to do a quick tour over in the US and so you might be gone for for, for three weeks uh, but apart from that it's yeah fly, fly in fly out two days a week three days a week and uh, that's it what are some of the biggest stadiums that you've played that really have you've looked at yourself and gone wow oh it's yeah. in in 2000, I toured with the Ten Tenors, and 
at the time they weren't using handheld radio mics. I think they had two handheld radio mics that would be passed around between the 10 of them for solos. So for the most part, when they were singing as a group, we had these, um, you've probably seen them on older talk shows where uh, they're in tub chairs and there's a little microphone on the ground that's got a really skinny stalk that comes up to a head, these little... Sort of like a lapel. Yeah, but on, on a little flexible head from the floor. So they had um, four of them maybe uh, set around in an arc at the front of the stage and they would sit about a metre high, I guess. And the band would, uh, the ten tenors would arc around those and that was the main microphones for their choral singing. Now, anybody who knows anything about audio knows they, if you've got a massive PA and they're your primary microphones, the potential for feedback and things like that is quite high. You know, you're a long, long way from the microphone. It's not like this where you're quite close to it. It keeps you on edge. And I remember when I first did that gig there, the manager said to me, look, Scott, you're the professional. What you say goes every night. However, um, and I and they said, and I understand that, you know, during sound check, you know, you're, you're, you're ironing things out, you know. They said, during the performance, if there's any feedback, you're on the next plane home. Wow, there's pressure. There's pressure. And so that taught me to really uh, be astute to how I'm listening to things. And if I get a whiff that there's some feedback happening during a performance, I'm jumping on that before it becomes a thing. And... I think that's been a big part of my career as well. Is like it's unacceptable for that to happen during a show. So, um, and that was driven by a guy. You lose your job if that happens. So, you know, and probably rightly so. Well, and then uh, you're saying what was the biggest? I bring that story up because when I was on tour with the Ten Tenors, one of the stops we did was in Kiama, and it was when it was on the lead up to the Sydney 2000 Olympics, and the torch was travelling around the country. The Torch would stop each night in a location and they'd put on a big festival-type party in that location. And it just so happens that night in Kiama, the Ten Tenors were uh, part of that date on their tour. There was 10,000 people at that gig and I was on a massive festival PA and I still had these little gooseneck mics around the front of the stage it was terrifying trying to amplify some guys acoustically over a massive PA through those microphones was a, was definitely a challenge, and uh, that 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 kept me on my toes. So that was that was one of the bigger ones. I mean, the Red Hot Summer Festival. There's about ten thousand people go to those. I've done plenty of those sort of festivals, and um, they're always exciting because you've got so many people there. It's like you, you feel it that you're nerves are really heightened and uh, I've got to do a great job for this act so these 10,000 people are engaged. Um, probably the biggest pressure show I ever did uh, was I'd just been hired to do front of house mixing for the Screaming Jets and my very first show with them was they were playing uh, halftime entertainment at uh, a rugby league international uh in newcastle stadium we were using the in-house stadium pa so there was not any extra rock pa brought in for to make a band like the screaming jets sound like the screaming jets so there was a degree of difficulty just using a stadium 
PA system to start with. But what made it very tricky was where I was mixing from, I could not hear what was going out on in the stadium because I was down the tunnel and around the corner with a console and two little speakers either side of me and a TV on the wall so I could see what was going on out in the stadium. We had a half hour sound check. So once everything was set up, we probably only had 15 minutes of playing time to get that right. And so I was running out of the tunnel and up about 10 seats in the stadium, would have a quick listen, then run back, make some adjustments, listen to these speakers, run back out. I think I did that three times before I got settled and thought, actually, I've, you know, I've made a good job of this. But you got to understand the pressure. My first gig with a band like the Screaming Jets in an environment like that, it was like, the pressure was insane. It's not like you're doing your first gigs in a pub and you're leading up to that or whatever. You've got a stadium filled with what? I don't know, 30,000, 45,000 people. I don't know what Newcastle Stadium holds, but first first gig with them. Are there any bands that you've worked with over time or artists where you've gone, or you've had that uh, wow factor that you've been a little bit intimidated by them? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a UMI fan. I got to do monitors for UMI once and I was a little bit intimidated by that. I don't know. You know, you always, I think your first gig with anyone that, like, you know, when I was a kid, I was a fan of the Screaming Jets, you know, and I got to work with them. I was a fan of the Baby Animals and I got to work with, with them on a tour as well, a couple of tours actually. And then um, oh, just before COVID hit actually, there's a UK band called the Choir Boys, not to be confused <laughs> with the Australian Choir Boys. Mm. The UK band is spelt Q-U-I-R-E-B-O-Y-S. And um, they're kind of more like a Black Crows, uh, Southern American bluesy kind of kind of band. And in the 80s, I, I was a fan of the band. Like, I, I bought their album. I really liked them. And then... Uh, in 2019 they had an Australian tour slated and I got asked if I'd tour with them and do their sound and so for me that was like wow this is I never thought I'd be doing sound for this band you know they're from the UK they're you know and that was that was fabulous I really enjoyed that what's harder like a theater production or like rock and roll well, the theatre productions that I mainly do are musical performance type ones. They're not, I mean, I've done a few musicals in, in the sense of, you know, a cast and musicals. I'll push them out to the side as another thing because they, they have a degree of difficulty that is uh, its own thing. And I've done some of them and I've done them well, but they, they are a handful to do. You're, you're on your toes the whole night. Um, but in theatre, doing something with Marina Pryor, say, doing a tour with her, um, I don't know. I think I just got into a groove where I've done so many shows with her that it's it's just it feels comfortable and and easy, you know. But I know I know I need this much time to set it up. The you know the I've sent ahead the way the piano's angled on stage, and that's already set for me when I arrive. And then uh, I've just got to put a little coffee table hidden behind the piano that's got a couple of props on it and a a jug and a glass of water for marina that's just you know around the corner out of the way make the stage look really tidy you don't want to see any cabling or whatever 
couple of bar stools that are matching. And look, the venues know this ahead of time as well. I did have one venue on a tour with Marina Pryor where they had mismatched bar stools and it just looked terrible. And I'm like, you know, this lady's selling out your theatre. You know, it's a it's a classy show. So I sent them down to um, Harvey Norman, the theatre, to buy a couple of decent bar stools to bring back for the gig that night. So, uh, you know, uh, these are things that happen. But putting that together is easy for me, you know. I, and I guess I get into a groove with it. It's so easy that, well, it's not so easy. I guess I'm just knowing what to do. And for Marina, I'd be doing... I'd actually have comms on my head during the night with one earphone off because I'm talking to the lighting operator, the follow spot operator and the stage manager. And I've got, had an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> that I would read off and I'd be calling lighting cues that I'd set up and um, as well as mixing the audio and, you know, curtain cues and all sorts of things. So I had my hands very full for her shows. But as I said, it became something that I felt quite comfortable with and quite natural to the point that I could deviate a little bit. And, you know, I I guess when you're doing a lot of shows with somebody, you kind of try and mix it up to keep it interesting. So I'd play a few pranks on Marina that only she would recognise when she was on stage. So it was comfortable enough that I could spend a little bit of my time doing that without uh, interfering with, you know, the real business of the show. The more you talk about it, as you say, the more performance on both sides of the speaker. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the fact that I would do these little pranks for Marina, they would be something that quite often... So she had a... a I, had to, I had to have a book that was a prop on stage that she would get into this character and she would have a book... And I would try and find the most outrageous book title I could to be as a prop. And she wouldn't see that each night until she actually pulled it out when she was on stage. So it would kind of distract her momentarily. But she, she's such a professional. She would take that as part of her performance and make it part of her performance. So if she'd see it, she'd, you know, she'd be talking to the audience and getting into character and then she'd look at the t- pick up the book and go and give a little snicker maybe. <laughs> and that was just something, you know, that was her and I that's, you know, more of this connection on stage. I'm sure she's amazing. It, it probably didn't affect her performance much at all, but I think that level of comfort just makes them feel like they can even do better you know they 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 feel totally supported during the night she used to have this gag where she would open the show uh then go for the water that i had there and take a sip of it and go oh gin cheers and then down the glass of water you know it was a bit of a nana joke it was you know amusing (laughs) and then one night in hobart i actually filled it with gin Uh. and so live on stage Uh, she's taken uh, a mouthful uh. of straight gin and gone what do I do with this? Because it was like, do I swallow it? Do I spit it out? She's got a full house in front of her and she swallowed it and then she just erupted into laughter and she couldn't engage with the audience for a couple of seconds, you know? It was like, felt like longer than a few seconds. But And the audience is just looking at her like, what, what's going on, you know? And then when she composed herself, she had to explain to the audience, normally I do this gag, but thank you to Scott... She knew it was me straight away. <laughs> Thank you to Scott, who actually filled my glass with gin tonight. And then the audience pissed themselves laughing and thought it was hilarious. So 
and then uh you know during the interval i went down to her dressing room and said oh how are you feeling on stage anything i can do to you know make you more comfortable and she goes that gag let's do it again i got a great response you know she's a consummate professional and um yeah just a great lady great great performer there is a saying what happens on tour stays on tour what are some of the interesting anecdotes from different bands over the years that God. you could share? Well, there's the caveat that I can share. <laughs> <laughs> the saying is what goes on tour stays on tour, so they're in a vault. Can I actually share them? <laughs> no. Oh, look, there's oh, so, so many. I, I, I actually am blank at the moment. I can't think of anything. Well, let's talk about the Screaming Jets then. What sort of uh, interaction do you have with those when the show finishes, the the, the after show, the the wind down time? What sort of things do these guys get up to? Look, it's it's funny because, you know, they're, they're a similar age to myself, um, some a little bit older. And um, Jimmy, for instance, is uh, a vegetarian. And he hardly drinks. Like, I've seen him in six years have probably six beers. You know, so he's very... And he's the oldest in the band. He still skateboards in half pipes and, you know, all sorts of things. He's quite quite a fit fit gentleman and um, he's a lovely human being. Uh, there's maybe a couple of them that, um, that, that still think they're 18. But, uh, <laughs> but look, you know what? I think that you they're not the same guys that went out in their early 20s and partied like it was the end of the world you know they've uh they've got families now they've uh you know they've matured they're they're still uh they've got a business you know they're they're, they're trying to make a living with uh music and music creation they're still writing original music so you know they they, they love to have a good time they definitely love love to have a drink i mean Gliso's got a saying when he's on stage, he goes, uh, we're a drinking band with a music problem. <laughs> so, you know, we, we all love to have a, have a drink together and just um, chill out and, you know, whatnot. But they're definitely not that party like the end of the world anymore. So they're, uh, they're, they're, they've got things going on. What about international acts that you've dealt with over the years? I believe Susie Quattro was one that you've... Um... Well, she was on a tour that I was on. So uh, we were doing the Red Hot Summer Tour and she was the headliner on, on that tour. And there was like... Uh, there was... Um, who was there? There was the uh, Baby Animals, Chocolate Starfish. There's a bunch of cool people on there that I that I got to meet. I'd, I'd worked with baby animals a bit, so I knew those guys. I guess we're travelling around from town to town, and Susie Quattro's there, and I just got to say, hey, g'day backstage a few times, and sometimes I'd watch one of the other acts from side of stage. Susie might come up and watch it there too, so you'd just have a bit of a chat and banter as you're watching the band. You go, oh, how, the drums doing a fabulous job, you know, and, and um, just ask her how she's enjoying tour or traveling around australia sometimes you're in the catering tent and so you're the only people in there so you're sitting down having a chat while you're having something to eat uh one night when we're at the same hotel we were uh there was a couple of us i think it was jimmy the guitarist from screaming jets um our stage manager athol and myself were just having dinner and susie came down with her husband 
and so she sat with us and we had dinner together and then uh, we ended up started playing uh, a game where you had to um, she was telling us stories and anecdotes and that turned into a game where you've got someone starts with A and you've got to say a band with the name of A and then it moves on to the next person with B and you've got to go around until you can't rem- you know you've got like three seconds to come up with a with a name and um, she instigated little games like that and we wow, was crazy late before we called it a night but you know she was just a down-to-earth lady who's done oh my god so many things you know i think she's got a or she had at the time still a, a radio show i think on the um bbc in the uk she had you know she's just on television she's she's done it you know she has lived and it's great to hear her stories wouldn't it be great to get her on your podcast? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, my interactions with her were really just, you know, just being a decent human being and just having dinner together in a chat. You know, it's, it's no more than that. Well, I suppose these guys need to keep you on side because you can make them or break them in a performance. Yeah, you know what? It's, it's interesting you say that because I remember I was on tour uh, with a band called Short Stack and we were supporting uh, Good Charlotte. And so again, you'd be sitting in the catering room, having your filet mignon or whatever <laughs> you're doing in, in, the, in catering. Um, and, you know, Joel might walk in or one of the guys from Good Charlotte might walk in, there'd be a couple of them. So we ended up having some great chats over the course of a few weeks. That was in 2010. And it was interesting to hear Benji and Joel talk about Good Charlotte because they recognised Australia as a key market for them. They were much bigger in Australia than they were in the US at the time in 2010. And they recognised that and they were incredibly grateful for that. And to hear them talk about that, they're very aware of who they are, where they are, who their market is. And uh, they speak very appreciatively of it. And it was really interesting to get their take on those sort of things. Good guys. Yeah, great. They were, you know... They told me stories of, uh, you know, when their first records came out, you know, they blew up huge, you know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and whatnot. And then they were saying that they didn't have a manager. They had one of their mates. They said, "Ah, do you want to come on the road with us and party with us? You can be our manager kind of vibe. And then um, the record label uh, president, bought them in for a 10-minute meeting once and said, listen, we're rejiggering. She was a new new person. We're re- reshuffling things. Um, we're going to let you go from your contract now. And it was at that point they said, we realised we needed to get a good manager to exit this contract gracefully and with a career ahead of us, which they obviously did because they're still you know, around and doing good things. But um, but I, I guess it's the, the way they recognise those things and the importance of some of those people in their career and that nobody's like the fact that they would talk to me they didn't have to talk to me very first night of the tour actually we're in our green room and there's a knock at the door and i open it and it's benji and you said hey man just want to say g'day and make sure after the show you come back to our dressing room and have a um have a drink with us and you know they're very very uh aware of the people who make and break them and they don't care if you're the president of the record company or the roadie on the show we all remember interactions with people and they want to make their interactions positive. So, you know, that was a real lesson in uh, 
doesn't matter how big you think you are, but be respectful of all the people around you. Do you see many egos? Oh, yeah, from time to time. Yeah, you see it. And I've kind of got a, a bit of a philosophy with how I accept work and how I don't. So I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I, I never judge a person based on someone else's experience with that person. But if my experience is negative with that person, then I will choose not to work with them again. Thankfully, I haven't had to do that very often. Um, but then the people that I work with, I seem to work with for a very long time. So um, they obviously like what I do. I love what they do. We connect just, just on a regular human level. And um, so, you know, got a great working relationship. You mentioned the big C word before COVID. Yes. How has it affected what you're doing and what you're seeing about the music industry? Oh, it's devastated. It's, um, I mean, as part of my job, there's more to what I do than just touring. I do consultation and design and installation of of audio systems and lighting systems and vision systems and things like that as well. So I've, um, so I'll do a plug now. I work for IJS Productions Australia and thankfully I'm on a wage with them. So I've been very lucky during this period uh, because the, a lot of my peers, we've got a, a notoriously high level of casual workforce in our industry. So I'm very lucky and grateful for that. But um, the, so I do a lot of design, like uh, just CX Magazine just la- uh, last week did an article on some installations that I did. I did, you know, like Hard Rock Cafe Gold Coast and Hard Rock Cafe Sydney just uh, designed and installed new systems for them. So I am lucky in my position during COVID. However, uh, we've been devastated. And you've got to think it's every, it's, it's everyone who has anything to do that's attached to this industry. It's the airlines we travel with. It's the hotels we stay in. It's the extra road crew that we pick up locally that are casuals. It's security. The, it's the car rentals that we pick up from. It's security. It's the venues we play at. It's the bar staff at those venues. It's impacted everybody who's attached to our industry. And if you think of when your average Joe who's got the nine to five job, when their industry suffered, we'd probably known about COVID for a little bit of time before they may have experienced a lockdown. And I'm not trying to minimize their experience with that either, but we were well before that. I promise you that. We were, when COVID hit, we were shut down. It was, I remember it was uh, March. What do you recall of what happened? Well, at IJS Productions, we do a lot of big festivals too. We do the Gimpy Music Muster. We've done that for a very long time. We do Caloundra Music Festival again, very long time. Woodford Folk Festival, very long time. Uh, Toowoomba Carnival of, Carnival of Flowers. Um, we do a lot of big events and festivals that tour around uh, and that's a big part of our work and that disappeared overnight you could not have gatherings on that scale anymore they went and they're also reliant on international acts national acts and local acts we haven't been able to get anybody internationally into this country for a very long time 
so we shut down was it March 2020 was it that's when we shut down but what you've got to understand is bands tour on cycles so we might do an 8 12 week tour then we might not do anything for 3 4 5 months and then we might do another tour so I'll take a band like the Screaming Jets because I know them well I've worked with them for like 6 years now the we were on an off cycle before COVID hit. So they already hadn't been working for four or five months. Then COVID shut it down. So when everybody has say, is saying, oh, we've had very little work since March 2020, there's a lot of performers out there, like the Screaming Jets, that have had, you add another four, five, six months on to when they haven't worked. We say we haven't worked for 18 months. They haven't worked for two years. It's been a very long time. A lot of these bands, like like the Jets, you know, we've got our drummers in Byron Bay, uh, the bass player and two guitarists are in Victoria. The singer is in Adelaide. Our guitar tech's in Adelaide. I'm on the Sunshine Coast. We're all over the country. One of those states is perpetually in lockdown. We can't get one of our members at least out at any time. So it's dire. And I mean, as far as who I work for, IJS Productions, we, um, you know, events that we do, we do like, you know, maybe five stages at Gimpy Muster, disappeared. We do all the back line at um, Byron Bay Blues Fest, disappeared. It is significant. And the guy who owns the business has not let anyone go. He's pushed through paid wages that whole time. We're in a very lucky position, but there's a lot of people just bleeding financially. They don't know what to do, where to turn. And we're looking at shows saying, okay, we, we thought we might be, you know, maybe three, four, five, six months and might be back. Then we said, oh, probably going to be a year, then we'll be back. I've kind of, I don't know when it's going to come back. There's a lot to happen before it can come back. Even uh, the big... Um, promoters, big agencies, so such as Live Nation, for instance. Um, I was supposed to be out in June with a, a Nashville um, singer-songwriter called Emma Swift. Rather than her come out f- from Nashville with her band, that costs a lot to quarantine and whatnot, she mm. came out by herself. So they put her in quarantine. That's just one person. And then they put kind of a super group around her. There was Darren Middleton from Powderfinger. There was Marty Brown from Claire Bowditch. There was uh, Mark Wilson from Jet. So this was the band they put around. They're Australian. So we don't have to quarantine these people. So the tr- Live Nation, they're trying to work out how to get some wheels on the tracks and get this thing moving. They're trying different things all the time that you don't see. We got to 10 days out from that tour and Victoria went into lockdown. Our first show was in Victoria. If we would have done that first show, we couldn't have left or we had to quarantine for two weeks. So that tour, Emma had done her two week quarantine, just fell over. Wow. Just fell over. And it's just countless shows like that. The Screaming Jets have moved their tour, I think it's four times now. You know, and, and you've got to think, okay, like I said, anyone attached to that, you've got, I look at the promoters, you know, they take a risk when they do this. They put their pony up their money and hope they can sell enough tickets. You know, if it's a, if it's a good gig, it's a payday, they make out like bandits. And we all look at that and go, oh, look at them. 
Look at how much money. They've got a big briefcase full of money. But if the show tanks, they lose money too. They've got a very high risk reward ratio going on. The promoters, look at the harbour agency that does the screaming jets. They've made phone calls and emails to book that tour four times. They haven't seen a cent out of that yet because they get paid a commission on us doing that show. So we've got to do the show. They get paid. They take their commission. So, so far, they've done four times the amount of work that they would normally do for a tour for us. And still made nothing. And still made nothing. They're working their asses off. You, you know, it's to say our industry is decimated, it is... They're drowning and we're just throwing more rocks at them. You know what I mean? We're just weighting them down more. There's a lot of talk, obviously, everyone knows that, uh, you know, COVID vaccine um, passport is looks like it's going to be a big part of uh, concerts that you, you won't be able to attend a concert if you don't have a COVID vaccine. Um, there's uh, promoters are even talking about only booking acts that have had their COVID vaccine, only booking crew to work on the events that have their COVID vaccine. You know, I've had my vaccine. I've had both shots now. Were you worried about it? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, you know, that's I've, I've ticked that box now. Um, so I'm ready, ready to get out there and work. And uh, I guess I'd never tell anyone to they have to make a health choice based on what I'm telling them. You know, it's their, it's their health choice to make. But the reality is this is a box we have to tick if we want this industry to move forward. And everybody in this industry, well, for the most part, the promoters, the booking agents, the artists, they're all going, get out there and get your bloody, get your bloody shots because we want to, we want to work. We, we need to earn something. You know, we're dying here. So it's very difficult. It's very difficult, and I think it's only part of the solution to the way out, of course. But um, you know, we've all got to do our part. That's just that's just it. And this this industry is not the same industry coming out of this. It's not the same industry we had going into it. The cost of putting on a show is going to be more expensive because we've got to be COVID safe. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of um, logistics based around COVID that we now have to acknowledge. And that's going to cost more money. Social distancing in the more security. You know, there's there's just things that will cost more money to put on a show. Shows will be more expensive to put on. They won't be cheaper. These are the realities. This is the new world. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people, you know, colleagues of mine that I meet, you know, once, twice, four times a year, say, hey, g'day, what have you been up to? They won't be around anymore. They'll have gone and got another job. They're in a casual workforce. They're working in other industries now. They go, I need to work. What am I going to do? I'm very positive to how this comes out. You know, music's a big part of the human existence. We, you know, we all love music to a degree. It, it, I'm sure it's a drug in our brain gets released. It makes us happy. You know, I haven't got the science behind it. Let's call it fake science at the moment. <laughs> but um, the, the, I don't know what the science is behind it, but music is a big part of society. And uh, if we want to see that come back, in any sort of substantial way then you know we have to we have to do our bit that's just how it is and uh, look I, I don't want to sound gloomy and doomy 
I think it's going to be fabulous when it comes back. I really do. How long do you think before we'll be back into full swing? Oh, I, I, I couldn't guess. I couldn't guess because it's going to be a long time before internationals are allowed back in here. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, Caloundra Music Festival slated to go on uh, in October, which, fingers crossed, it'll go ahead. Uh, Queensland only acts, which is great for if you're a Queensland artist wow make hay while the sun shines you know people they want to hear some live music and they're starved of it at the moment man this is your time to shine show us what you got I was hanging out uh two weekends ago now just a little there was a a mutual friend uh had told me about Noosa on the Noosa River there's a guy down there busks every Sunday just outside um there's a floating bar on the on the river there and he just busks outside that um and he gets a few hundred people to sit there chill out on a sunday afternoon and listen to the music it's fabulous and uh this mutual friend of mine and ian moss's uh said oh, i'll come down you know mossy's coming down i've only met mossy one one time before that but mossy's been he's from sydney he's been up in queensland since march or april or something this year is he, he ain't going back to New South Wales anytime soon. Who wants to go back there, right? <laughs> so he's going, I can actually do a few gigs while I'm up here. I can, you know, I can make something happen. So there's a couple of people like that that have just gone, I'm staying in Queensland. It seems to be a bit, a bit more open up here or, you know, I can, I can actually do some work. So when I say a lot of these events are going to have Queensland-based acts, there'll be a few people like Mossy will, you know, be in that mix as well. But by and large uh yeah it's it's local only which could be a good thing it's not a bad thing so where do you think it'll it'll head to that it'll be the the norm for the next couple of years uh no promoters are they've got their finger on the trigger ready to to put these shows back on like um some international shows and whatnot as soon as they get a whiff that that's that's going to be a thing they're ready to pull the trigger and go and that's going to be another hurdle that we've got to get over as an industry because everyone's touring at slightly varied times you don't have a hundred percent of the music industry touring at the same time it's you know it's it's spread out a bit there's some peaks and troughs in there but generally speaking so-and-so's touring now then they're off tour then someone's touring here it's a hundred percent of the industry just at the starting gate they're ready want, to go ready to go so when it does open up there's going to be 100% of the industry want to be touring at the same time. It's going to be good and bad to come out of that. I mean, for, I guess, venues and promoters that are booking acts where they say, hey, I can get this act for this much money, they might say, well, you know what, I can get this act that's usually the same money as you, but I can get them cheaper because everybody's going to be, there's going to be an oversupply all of a sudden. Some sort of auction going on? Yeah, yeah, probably. I'm speculating, but there'll be an oversupply of touring artists at one time it's 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 no different to any other commodity that's supply and demand you talk about the promoters that some some do really well and uh on some do you see many tours tank over the years when they've made the wrong decision i haven't personally seen a lot of it but i know of many that have um yeah, the, the tour. I mean, when I'm tour manager, I'm, I'm putting together tour budgets and things like that. So, I respect the artists' money and the promoters' money on a tour that I'm in charge of, as if it was my own money. So, I'm very, very respectful of that. 
Um, but we all see it. I mean, you go to a big festival, you go, oh, there's 50,000 people here. They've all paid 150 bucks a ticket. You go, there's a lot of money to be made here. You know, that's everyone's thought of that at some point. You go, geez, they're taking a lot through the gate. But you're not seeing, you know, what it costs to hire that venue, to secure that venue, to um, promote the event, to uh, hire in the portaloos, to, you know what I mean? There's a lot goes into that. And we've seen many a big festival collapse owing tens of millions of dollars. And it's not as easy as people, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But promoters take big risks. Like I respect them, I respect booking agents, I respect promoters. I mean, there's a lot of people in the industry that hate those people because of you know where they're perceived as their role, um, but they're they're an integral part of the industry, and a lot of them are taking really big risks. The reward's great when they hit it, but for for every one that they've hit, you know, they've I'm sure there's a lot where they've lost as well so you know it swings and roundabouts when the covid gates open will the money be there to be made do you think uh i think people will be keen to get out and and um forget about this nonsense for a while you know it'll, it'll be it'll be great you know like i t- two weekends ago sitting down watching this busker on the banks of the noosa river there it was just you're having a beer great Sunday afternoon it's just you know you shrug off life for for a couple of hours it's 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 a good thing and I think people people want to be entertained you know I personally got tickets to Kitty Flanagan you know (laughs) to see her when she's she's supposed to have been um this month or last month I think and um obviously comedians you know they're they're in the same boat they're getting their tours are getting postponed as well you know because they can't get out of their state or whatever um there's going to be a there's going to be an influx of entertainment options come on all at the same time the tap will come on and so you say how long will it take for our industry to get back to what it was pre-covid you got to understand that's a phase of no events then at the moment limited events with local content only to a glut of events and it's even when it opens up will probably be another 12 months beyond that before it all settles down and finds its equilibrium again and we go okay this is back to normal so yeah we're a long way off that's for sure what do you think when you heard about the nrl wags and families and that they could come <clears throat> over the border yet there's all the other, um, I've heard a bunch of music guys saying, well, we just need to play football, not music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. Um, you know, players like Matty Johns like coming to the Jets shows, so he like he's actually got up on stage and sung with Gleeso. When uh, Gleeso had his birthday, we were in Sydney one night, and uh, he got up and pushed a cake on for Gleeso and then sang better with him at the end of the night. So... Gleeso's got a bit of a connection to some NRL players, so I said, oh, maybe we should leverage that and get Matty Johns to appear at each of our uh, <laughs> shows, and then you might get get out, be able to get out. There's certainly a lot of jokes going on around that at the moment. But, look, uh, I've got mixed feelings about it. I think, I think any government who's trying to get things like that, keep them happening and get them over the line should be applauded. They're, like, it's a great thing. I mean, for me personally um 
you know, the little Sunshine Coast Stadium there, I've got to see a couple of great NRL games that, you know, where I'm sitting on a grass embankment on a picnic blanket 15 metres from the action and uh, get to see some amazing, amazing sports, which would normally be in a massive stadium in a capital city. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. But there can't be a set of rules for one and then a different set for the other. It's like, great that you were able to get that over the line. How can you work with us to get this over the line as well? There has to be some sort of balance. Do you think the Premier could uh, fall on a sword because of that? Because there's a lot of talk about the fact that there's a rule for one and a rule for another. Yeah, I think in Queensland there's been a lot more luck than good management. I think, um, look, none of us can know what what Palaszczuk is having to deal with on a day-to-day basis or, or any um, state premier for that matter. And, you know, they'll make mistakes. They're humans, you know, uh, so I don't want to be too harsh on them. Uh, having said that, I'm not a fan of what she's doing. I think her, her whole, making it into a political pr- platform for an election is pretty low-hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> you know, it pretty much had one one agenda: shut the border, keep Australia, keep Queensland safe. You know, uh, I think a, I think a primary school kid could shut a border, but to me, it's like, well, what's your plan to open the border? That's management. Shutting the borders. A kill switch but what's your plan what's your what's your management strategy to reopen that border what's your management strategy to get industry working um and seeing her favor um million or billion dollar industries um over others is is pretty it's pretty unfair really if you think about it i mean there's a lot of people said oh you know, what we go through with COVID, smoking kills a lot more people, but, you know, obviously they get a tax off that. COVID's got no tax attached to it. So, you know, we see we view things differently. How many people are in hospital dying of some smoking-related illness and clogging up our hospital system with that? So there's I hear a lot of arguments. I don't... I, I personally... I try and re- remain very balanced on all of these things and um, obviously working in an industry where I see my colleagues just you know financially bleeding and you know there's businesses falling over let's not let's not um make this any less uh important than it is there's people have lost their livelihoods people have lost their houses people have i'm I'm sure unfortunately taken their lives as well you know there's the mental state of all of this is quite taxing and you know everybody i talked to a mate of mine who's in the queensland ambulance service and he said those guys the, the, the rate of uh, mental um, breakdown is crazy in that at the moment because they're, they're just they're, they're overworked they're fatigued oh just in the ambulance in service. the ambulance service mm. you know there's every industry is dealing with this and we can only deal with this and look at it with our own lens on so you know you, you can't say oh, I'm I'm more affected than you are because the music industry is probably more affected than most. But that's also our lens, you know, so we can't minimise someone else's experience for that because it's probably impacting them equally. But it's definitely, um, definitely, it's not fun, you know. I, I feel lucky living on the Sunshine Coast. We're relatively untouched. I've got like a, a, a 
short 10-minute Sunday bike ride to Mooloola Bar, to Kiwana Beach, to um, Point Cartwright, some just beautiful locations in my backyard and um, living on the Mooloola River there. And, you know, I just, I'm forever grateful for it. I just have, I think I've got a great life. But um, having said that, it's hard it's hard for me as well but that's that's my lens but i don't say it's harder for me than someone else are you glad you moved out of brisbane because of what's happened yeah yeah well i mean i've been wanting to connect back to the beaches for a long time so you know i've been looking for that option to get out of brisbane and um yeah i'm very happy that i did it's definitely again it's always having this work-life balance thing that i've tried to my whole life you know and uh, I, you know, it's not hard. I can fly out of the Sunshine Coast Airport for tours, when tours happen, um, or or it's an hour to Brisbane. You know, it's not that not that far to fly out of Brisbane either. Should the government be giving more money and more support to the music industry? Do you think to get it back on its feet? Oh, it's a it's a yes is the short answer. Um, but like any government, you know got a finite amount of resources for every dollar they give away it's probably another dollar they've gone into debt what i think is a fairness about how they dish out that money you know don't don't um don't favor a particular industry and i know having spoken to some of my colleagues when we hear about these business grants um that they dish out from time to time that's all great and thank you to the government for doing those things but quite often there are caveats within that that maybe exclude somebody from having access to those grants where you would think they'd be the perfect candidate for those grants so um, I've spoken to colleagues who said oh, I don't qualify that for reason A or I don't qualify that for reason B and you say oh and I've had some of the some of the sole traders say, "Oh, that they're more targeted at big business," but then um, working for my company, we're a bigger production company than most, and I see that we're not entitled to a lot of those things as well because the and we could say equally that they're tailored for smaller business, but it's just where the where the questions are targeted to qualify you can be pretty exclusive. Do you still enjoy live music? I love it. Yeah, I love it. I miss the touring greatly. Uh, I don't miss sleeping in a different bed every night, that part of the touring. I'm definitely enjoying my own bed, but um, I miss the adrenaline, you know, the what's gone wrong tonight? What am I, you know, there's a million parts, million moving pieces to any gig and one of them is always not firing. There's something, you know, from uh this artist writer requests a bottle of jack daniels at every show and then you know at this new south wales venue they're not allowed to give uh a straight liquor to somebody because that's a it's a state law or or whatever and so then that's something i have to spend some time working on <laughs> to manage because yeah, i was going oh i need that to you know wind up for the night or calm down from the night or whatever it be or um dealing with sickness on the road or you know you've got an artist who you need to you know take to a doctor because you know they're they got a you know a bronchial infection or you forget about all these things that are happening there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot going on for any gig to happen
Are you an an adrenaline junkie? Oh no, I wouldn't say I'm adrenaline. I'm an adrenaline junkie. Because um, you must really fire off that live. Oh, you do. Hip and happening. Hip and happening right now. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You 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 feel you you you. I don't know if it's it's not anxiety. It's not tension. It's just this feeling of all your senses are alive and you're just like it's hard to corral that all together to make it happen but when you do it's just incredible you know it's it's amazing what's the feeling like after a really great show yeah um oh great you're on you're on cloud nine you're just like Yeah, that's <laughs> how amazing was that? You know, you're just riding high and you just your adrenaline goes through the roof. You probably can't sleep when you get straight back to your room. You know, you gotta you drink too much on the road, but a lot of it is really you've got to you've been doing this thing till quite late at night, and then you've got to switch off and go to sleep to get up early in the morning. It's just easy to you know knock back a couple of beers and then go to sleep. Um, you can. You can see in the industry how a lot of their excesses uh, occur, but um, but you kind of almost need them. You you require well a modicum of them, let's say. Um, like I I definitely need to have a beer before I go to bed because, like you say, you're just so amped up after a great show, and you know it's two a.m. and you've got to get some sleep. You know you can't just lie in bed staring at the ceiling because of all this adrenaline that's rushing through you. So yeah, you have to kind of wind down somehow. Back in the halcyon days of Australian rock, there was the sex, drugs and rock and roll. What have you seen in the industry that's changed over the years? Is it more of a business than it used to be? Oh, definitely. It's, um, you know, the, the, the black T-shirt wearing, long-haired, roadie, having a spliff out by the truck. Says, says us in both. Yeah, black- I'm wearing a black T-shirt today. Um, but the... That image of the roadie is pretty dead now. It's like the, the there used to be a real loosey goosey. The show's got to happen. How do we make it happen? Oh, we we'll just twist a bit of wire around this. That'll that'll sort it out. You know, it's like just it's got to happen. Whatever it takes to happen. We finished the show at this time. It's got to be in the truck by this time. It's got to drive to the next city by this time. Uh, we'll get probably an hour and a half sleep if we're lucky. You know, Th- those days are kind of over now. It's like we've we've got to acknowledge, and uh, we've got to present risk assessments. We've got to acknowledge OHNS. We've got to well, not acknowledge it. We've actually got to implement it. Um, so anybody who's not on board with that is getting left behind. They might still be around, but they're the cowboys. You know, the, we, we have to be professional. We have to... I like to, you know, after a tour, party party with them and, you know, just let your hair down and uh, have a good time. But at the end of the day, I've also got to get up the next morning, make sure they get to the airport, don't miss their flights and, and all sorts of things. You've got to be professional. There's a, it's, it's a business and the people who acknowledge it as a business and act professionally and tick the right boxes um they're the people that will be moving forward and and uh have a career ahead of them the ones who are loose and fly by the seat of their pants they're the ones that are going to get caught out we have to we have to um 
care for and create safe environments for all of us. Otherwise, you're going to fall on your ass at some point. Especially in the COVID era. What do you see in the next five years? You say the music industry, and quite rightly, has been decimated. Mm. What do you see happening over the next five years in music in Australia? Mm. Well, it's a very broad question. Um, obviously, with the way we deal with COVID now, we've got um, people sharing microphones. We've, you know, got implemented in in um, place different cleaning practices than we would have had in the past with microphones. We might have twice as many microphones on any show so that we're not giving the same microphone to more people. These are all real tangible costs that are uh, related to putting on shows these days. You know, they're they're, they're a real thing. They're a thing. Um, we'll see more of that, I guess. Obviously, our COVID check-ins that we do at the supermarket and the shop we go into, you know, they'll probably, uh, when they read your ticket at an event, that'll be your, that'll somehow sink back to a, a government COVID app or something like that, or at least some sort of um, digital document that, that has to be presented as to, to, to the state health as part of your event being approved to go forward. Um, with that, if you think about free events, like your Christmas carols events, where you have uh, a lot of people en masse there that just walk in, put their picnic blanket down and have a great family time, maybe those things have to be fenced. Now they've got security. They've got dedicated entrances and exits that they never used to have. You know, it would be a wide open park previously. Now we have to corral them through here because we have to register everyone that comes through. Mm. Maybe they can't come in if they don't have a COVID vaccine certificate. I don't know. But these are the things that they're the new logistics that we'll be dealing with to put on events. So, And all of those will have more costs. You've got to buy fen- you've got to uh, hire fencing. You've got to hire security. Whereas before, they might have had any of those things. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. But Scott Mullane, thank you so much. And thanks for joining us over Th- the bonnet. Thanks, Mark.